with up two. Moncada hits it wide left of center. This is for the lead. Moncada. One and out to Tim Anderson. That ball is hit well. Deep left field toward the corner. Tim Anderson sends it out of here. Jimenez drills it. Left center, number one in this ballpark is Gargantuan. And a line drive, left field base hit. That's going to split the gap and go all the way to the wall. Mercado runs. Jimenez, a towering fly ball to center field, and it is up and out of here. Makata throws this ball right field. The only question is which deck. Jimenez in the air, left field. He's your hero tonight. Welcome into another episode of the White Sox Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Flowers. And we got a good episode in store for you tonight. We have Future Sox Senior Editor and Managing Editor of Southside Hit Pen, James Fox, on the show tonight. We're going to be talking about his recent phenomenal interview with Chicago White Sox Senior Biomechanical Engineer, Ben Hansen. We're also going to be talking some spring training stuff with James, as spring training is officially one week away from today. That's right, folks. One week from today, White Sox pitchers and catchers will have reported to Camelback Ranch for their first workout, and we know that there will be a handful of position players that will have also reported by that time as well. Uh, We heard last week that the excitement was just as much with the players and the coaches as it was with the fan base. So expect to see lots of phases rolling in there later this weekend, this weekend, uh, reporting early and beginning the quest for the march towards the 2020 season. Uh, We're going to talk to James about uh, some Sox prospects, a little bit of Luis Roberts and Nick Madrigal. We'll talk to him about Dylan Cease. We're going to talk to him about some non-roster invitees with him being the senior editor over at Future Sox and one of the better prospect and talent evaluators, at least as far as the Whites are are concerned, that I personally know and have worked with. I think that James is a fantastic person to have on the episode just a week away from getting into spring training. So very excited about tonight's episode and the things that we're going to talk about. Before we get started, um, a little house cleaning. Be sure to go follow the ONTAP Sports Network across all social media platforms at the handle at ONTAP Sportsnet. Go follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle at Socks Unfiltered. And of course, make sure you're following James Fox if you're not already, which I would find that hard to believe if White Sox uh, baseball is your niche and uh, and you're on social media. But in the event that you're not, um, follow James Fox on Twitter at JamesFox917. Follow Future Sox at Future Sox. And follow Southside Hitpen at Southside Hitpen. Without further ado, my conversation with James Fox. Hey, James, what's going on tonight? Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, Pat, thanks for having me. No, anytime. James, I wanted to talk to you first about <clears throat> your magnificent piece that you wrote um, on Ben Hansen, the senior biomechanical engineer uh, for the Chicago White Sox. First of all, tell me a little bit about how you got in contact with Ben and what was the driving force behind, um, you know, writing that story and putting that all together. Yeah, so I mean, it's just something that seemed different. Uh, so 
the I don't know if it was the day that he got hired, but the day that he announced that he was hired, you know, I thought it was super interesting. I reached out to him right away. He got back to me right away. You know, I kind of asked him, you know, if he'd be able to do an interview. And, you know, I kind of sent him some questions just to see, you know, and it probably took him about two weeks to get back to me. But he said, you know, he had to run it by the White Sox first. And he, you know, said that they approved it or whatever, approved all of them. They're, you know, the, the organization's weird with stuff like that sometimes. And that's where, you know, in the piece, I referenced Matt Lyle a little bit, just, just because, you know, like he ultimately wasn't the right fit, but I think that set them down the right path possibly. And, you know, he was pretty much off limits to reporters last year. Like, you know, it was like in passing, um, I tried to reach out to him and he was basically like, yeah, they're, you know, they're not going to let me do it. And I think there were some other like actual reporters that, you know, wanted to talk to him and he wasn't really allowed to do anything. So honestly, like it was something like I thought I was going to get shut down personally, um, but they, they let it happen. And I would have had to write the thing like without his quotes, which would have been tougher to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I guess I just like thought, I mean, I look, I knew that some teams were, were incorporating biomechanics, obviously, and probably mo- most teams now. I mean, anybody that's read um, the MVP machine kind of like has an idea like what all these teams are doing. And obviously the White Sox aren't one of these teams at the forefront typically, and they still aren't, but, you know, at least they're, you know, starting to look more like a modern scouting and development operation. So, which, you know, I thought was promising. So that's why I wanted to write it. Yeah, absolutely. I read it uh, when it came out, and I think it was Monday, and I said this was your must-read for the day for everybody. I don't care where you're from, um, and it was. It was, it's, it was really great insight into something that, you know, it, there's, a, there's a demographic of, of White Sox fans that have no idea about Rapsodo and Force Plates and K-Vests and any of that stuff. I mean, I personally do. Because the industry that I work in, owning a baseball and softball training facility, you know, we have Rapsodo uh, in our facility. We have Blast Motion. We have, um, you know, we have uh, Modus. Um, it, we don't have, I mean, they're force plates and there's a lot more expensive stuff um, that the White Sox have and Major League Baseball teams have access to. But even if I found it very interesting knowing stuff about this, but I know that people that have no idea what this stuff is, they want to know about it, and they also want to know that, like you said, the White Sox, if they're not at the top of the league in um, technology, that they're at least heading down that path, right? And they're, they're not putting up a wall of resistance towards changing their, their philosophies. Yeah, so, you know, we just talked about Matt Lyle. So I heard a few different things about Matt Lyle last year where, you know, he tried to come in. And he tried to implement all this stuff. And I had kind of heard that, you know, Matt Lyle was a little bit off-putting, you mm-hmm. know, obviously from the team side, you know, I think that came. And then from Matt Lyle's side, it was kind of like, well, none of these old coaches will listen to me. So, you know, there's probably like an in-between there somewhere where he like wasn't the proper fit. But even looking at the rest of the um, the rest of the development staff, I mean, they're finally – to the point where it's like top down by level and everybody's doing the same things. I mean, you know, it only makes sense, but you know, they just haven't been that way. So, you know, I don't know a ton about Ben Broussard other than what I wrote, you know, but so he's the head of head of hitting and they really liked Ryan Johansson last year and he's the assistant now. And then underneath that, there's two hitting coaches at every level that are speaking the same language, like all the way up to Frank Menachino. So, you know, I think that that's, a positive. I mean, you, you know, you were talking about how you you have a lot of experience with some of that stuff. It was actually tough for me to write, mm-hmm. honestly. 
I mean, and look, I think I'm a fairly decent writer, but I, you know, I had to do a lot of research to make sure that like I wasn't wrong in some of the stuff that I was like writing. So it wasn't even necessarily me like trying to catch like novice White Sox fans up to speed. I was like learning stuff as I was writing and I didn't want to leave anything out, but I also like didn't want to write too much and have it just be like this piece that's like super long that, you know, that, that people are just going to like get sick of and stop halfway through. Cause it's like over their head. Cause honestly my head hurt. Like for periods, I I, I would st- I would stop and then write more and then ooh I can start talking about an actual person instead of like some of the the necessary stuff. So, but yeah, I mean it was one of the most interesting pieces I've ever written. But it's also like the help from Ben Hansen I think made the piece because I like needed I really needed quotes for it. Right. I mean, and you did you did a fantastic job, especially for somebody who had no prior experience with the you know the the terminology and and the functions behind the you know the stuff that. Um, was introduced to you by by Ben and and the new things that the organization were using. So, you know, hats off to you for that. But, I mean, I know you're capable of that as a writer. I've known that for a while. Uh, I loved it that you said that now the White Sox, you know, like you said, Matt Lyle might have been not the right fit or somewhere in between. But when they hired Lyle last year, and I, I was very familiar with Matt Lyle, um, but it, it was like they only hired Matt Lyle, like, it was Lyle, and I think actually Johansson was there last year in some capacity. Yeah, capacity. He was, yeah. So Ryan Johansson was the assistant hitting coach at Kannapolis, right? So mm-hmm. while I think they really liked what he was doing, he was the assistant hitting coach at Kannapolis. Right. So, and obviously, it's a big promotion from assistant hitting coach at Kannapolis to like assistant hitting coach of the entire you know organization. So, and he's and he's actually brought in like a couple of his own people. Like Nate Pearson works over at his facility. Um, James Fegan of the Athletic had a really good piece on Ryan Johansson today, and there's Devin DeYoung, who's a guy that's at Birmingham. He's like got a bunch of biomechanics experience, so like they're really, I don't know, I don't know if it's like this new thing where they're like going all in towards it. But the really good thing about it is that he's, you know, Hansen's working on the player development side, like towards like you know improving players, but he's also working with the training staff too, which is maybe even like a bigger deal, I think. I do too. And, you know, I just, it felt incomplete last year. Like it, it was an incomplete effort, you know, a half-assed attempt, you know, per se, because it was like they had Johansson stuck all the way down in low A as an assistant hitting coach. And then they, they had Lyle with and his position. Really, we never even knew what his position actually was. I don't think there was ever even one name that was decided upon. Um, or, you know, well, they was, called him, they called him a hitting analytics instructor, but you know, even like I said, like they, like I wanted, you know, I had questions. I'm like, what, what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. is he, is he doing stuff for the entire organization? Is he in Arizona? Is he at one of the affiliates? And that, that stuff was all like kind of closed off. I mean, you know, from what I've heard is he was taking like swing data in spring training and then, and then acting basically as a conduit to get it to the coaches. But it sounds like some of the coaches were pretty resistant to a lot of that data. Now, whether that's because, for whatever reason, like they didn't trust Matt Lyle or if it was just because they didn't really feel like changing. I don't know. I mean, some of those coaches I feel like are still employed. So, you know, but they have, you know, they've made, they've made changes in like the most prominent spots. Right. It just seems like it's so much more 
you know, fully committed this year. You know, like you said, there's there's two co- two hitting coaches at every level. They have, you know, at least three guys at the top working top down. They have the guys, uh, you know, they're working with the training staff as well as the, the, you know, the coaching staff on getting the hitting notes along. It seems like we finally have stepped into the new, the next century of, you know, baseball player development with the White Sox, that they finally have the people and the structure in place to take advantage of all the technology that's been around us for a few, couple of years now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, last year in spring training, they had like wraps and it was all over the field. And, you know, they said that they were doing like K-Vest type stuff. And I think like it said in the piece that they were, you know, like they were using Modus's stuff, you know, but not like at a full-time capacity where they were like paying Ben Hansen. They were, he was just like a consultant or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if you're going to like actually get into the 21st century, like you have to have people that can make the kids like understand that information and what you're telling them, which has been different from the past, honestly. And it's been one of the reasons why the White Sox haven't been able to develop as many players as you would think, just because, you know, like a a kid's at Great Falls and he learns how to hit one way and then he goes to Kannapolis and he's taught something completely different. And then by the time he gets to Birmingham, I mean, he's been taught three different ways by three different hitting coaches. And like, you know, if we sat and like had a conversation about it, like we would think that doing things this way is absolutely nuts, but it's kind of the way that it was happening sometimes. Which, which, is, which is crazy. <laughs> that's absolutely uh, the best way to describe it. And that's absolutely, you know what I mean? It's it's the different ways. As, an, as a system of affiliates, it should be top down and then reverse. Like you said, everywhere you go, you're learning from the same philosophies. Now you're going to have coaches who are going to speak a couple th- different things. Um, you know, there's going to be different coach speak. They're going to have a couple different ideas of their own. But at the end of the day, the major philosophy the organizational philosophy is is universal, top to bottom, major leagues all the way to you know instructs, and I think that's the that's the way to do it. And you know you bring you brought up Frank Menachino a couple times, um, and that's another guy who you know nobody really knows much about um, other than you know his brief playing career and and uh, you know a couple clips we've got from uh, him at Charlotte last year, other players mostly while he was at Charlotte. Give me your take on Frank Menachino and what he brings to the major league level this year. I just know that like every every prospect that we talked to at Future Sox like raved about Frank Menachino and it was kind of like, oh, why? And you know, they said that, you know, he he would give him advice and then he would, you know, kind of like let him do it. But he, you know, he, they said that he seemed like a major league hitting coach at Charlotte. So he did preach, you know, to like hit your pitch, but he also preached like plate patience, which is something that they haven't really done. I mean, under Todd Steverson, you know, Todd Steverson wasn't opposed to walking, but he didn't exactly, like, teach it, right? And mm-hmm. so so it was kind of like, oh, look for your pitch and hit it. But, like, look for your pitch and hit it how, you know? I mean, guy like Eloy Jimenez, like, came up right away. He's bashing everything into the ground. And, you know, so I, I think Menachino will change some of that. I think, you know, it's part of the reason why they traded for Nomar Mazzara, a lot of people didn't really like that trade. Um, I mean, we'll see. Like, even if Nomar Mazzara is what he is, like, he's he's okay. But I think that their hope is that they can unlock more power because they're hoping that they can get him to buy in and, and hit more fly balls, which, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be curious. I mean, their stats in September were better and Frank Menachino was in the dugout. I, I have no idea if that means anything. I'm not a huge believer in September stats, but it's but it's at least interesting, you know, that he was 
he was there for for some of the takeoff with some of these guys. Yeah, I I totally agree. You know, take September stance with a grain of salt, but you know it's he was in the dugout and you know he, he you the Nomar Mazara thing. I've been preaching this since the trade happened. You know, he's Nomar Mazara's biggest fault in Texas was that he would hit everything into the ground. He grounded out way too much. He got on pitches way too much. Um, you know, I really think that Menachino is going to be able to get him to elevate the ball, and we're going to see Mazzara put up career highs. That, does that mean that he's going to turn into, you know, a 5-6 uh, win player? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think he's going to go. he can go from 20 to 30 home runs very easily this year by just being able to get the ball up in the air more. Yeah, and if he's hitting at the bottom of your lineup, like it's it's absolutely fine. He's not he doesn't have to be a long term fit. He's only twenty four. He's got a two year deal. Yeah, I mean they're you know, they're taking a shot and they didn't really give up anything for him, so I think I think it's fine. Yeah. Steelwalker, how much did we lose there, in your opinion? Um I, so I actually I was really worried about Steel this year, like going to Birmingham. I I think they might have sold high, honestly. You know, like, you could make the argument that you'd want to take Steel Walker and pair him with somebody else to, like, get something better, you know, instead of, like, selling him for Nomar Mazzara. Mm-hmm. Trading him, I don't think it's a problem at all. I mean, look, you draft guys to trade him sometimes, and Steel Walker's, what, like, going to be 24 years old this year, and he, you know, he's only played at high A. I think I, I made the remark on Twitter that, you know, they, they traded – for a guy that can't hit lefties in the big leagues, but they traded a guy that can't hit lefties in the Carolina league. So, I mean, you know, and that, yeah, and that's one of the, I mean, who knows, maybe he goes to Texas and he takes off, but I mean, I, he, I don't know if he can stick in center and I don't really know if he has the power to play in a corner. So, you know, I mean, look, he might be a big leaguer, but when, like even a year and a half from now, he's going to be, you know, already like 25 or so by then. So no, I don't, I don't really, I don't really think they gave up it much. I mean, the only, I guess the only gripe would be, like I said, that he wasn't used like in a bigger deal to like get somebody else if that's a guy that you were going to sell. But I mean, th- this is one thing that the White Sox used to do well. They used to hype up prospects and then trade them to somebody, you know, before like some of the shine wore off. Mm-hmm. So, so hopefully, you know, hopefully it's a case of that. And they caught a bad rap around baseball for that. Oh yeah, they- <laughs> once some of them, once the shine wore off and people realized. You know that these were these were more duds than studs. They got a bad rap around baseball for that, and then then you know people were kind of reluctant to uh, trade with them, at least for prospects. Well, they had a terrible farm system forever, but yet they were like still able to like acquire major league talent at the deadline. <laughs> it was always like kind of shocking, you know. Yeah. So you another thing uh, you wrote of you mentioned in in the Ben Hansen piece, um, and you and I talked about you know I, we saw each other at Sox Fest, and I had to go. I had the kids and I was taking off and you were sticking around for uh, Mike Shirley. Um, yeah. So Mike Shirley took over for Nick Hostetler um, as the director of amateur scouting. What are your first impressions on Mike and the way the amateur scouting department's going to look moving forward? Yeah. So just listening to him at his seminar, he sounds like, you know, and you know, who knows, but he like, sounds like he would like to do nothing else, but to be the scouting director for the Chicago White Sox. I mean, it was, it was like constant energy. You know, I love some of the stuff, um, that he was, it sounds like they're going to be more high school focused. Like not that they won't take a college player, but you know, he, he, he just talked about using some of the technology and a lot of the, you know, he was talking about the, uh, the force plate technology and stuff like that, which is another good thing 
that they're like more adept at doing this stuff because I do think <clears throat> I think they got college heavy for multiple reasons, right? They you know back in 2016 they made a concerted effort to like insulate their farm system with college hitters so that you would have like a floor of your farm system. Now you know you miss out on some high upside prospects by taking Zach Collins and Alec Hansen and some of these guys, but you also like got probably five or six guys you know, from those drafts that'll ultimately be big leaguers, you know, maybe not great big leaguers, but guys that'll make it. Whereas, and I think you were relying on a lot of the, like, uh, the, the stack cast data and stuff or whatever that they have at the college ballparks. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so then you're relying heavily on those schools now, like, you know, they're equipped to do that stuff themselves. So they, they should be able to take more high school guys. That was, um, that was pretty telling, I mean, look, Mike Shirley's been employed by the White Sox for like 20 years. So, you know, he basically made it clear that the philosophy won't be won't be a ton different. But I think they are moving into a stage, you know, with their farm system where it's not going to be like college bat, college bat, college bat. Because, like, honestly, like you hope those guys move fast and you don't necessarily have a place for like all those guys to play. Right. So going high school heavy and going a little bit younger Makes sense. I mean, obviously, with the 11th pick in the draft, if there's a college pitcher there that they have to have, like they'll probably take him and then you know focus on on preps later. But I do think that they're gonna you know they're gonna like usher in like a new path here. And I think you know whether like Mike Shirley is like the ringleader behind that or whether he just happens to be in charge right now. Like I think it's we'll see. But I was I mean I was impressed. I talked to him for a little bit. He was you know said that. You know, to just let them know whenever we needed anything, which is which is positive. So um, Nick Hostetler was always really, really good to us at Future Sox. So I anticipate that continuing. I'm just, you know, curious to see uh, the first draft class and see how different it is. Yeah, Nick's an awesome guy. Uh, and I'm glad Mike seems to you to be the, that way. Uh, that's, that's a good thing that it, you guys can continue to have that access. I mean, you guys by now, even the White Sox themselves know that Future Sox is as legit as it gets for you know covering the White Sox farm system. So I, you know, I don't think you guys should have any problem. But I'm excited, like you said, that they're going to shift the philosophy now uh, towards drafting more prep stars because you look around the league and you look at a lot of the top farm systems in baseball, and not just right now this year, but farm systems that are consistently in the top 10 or inside the top five, and they just have uh, you know a plethora of prep talent that they've drafted throughout the years that makes its way up through through its system. And I think for the Sox, right now, the same year to shift from college bats or college arms to prep stars that they can, you know, more accurately self-evaluate with the new tools and the technology and the, the people that they have in place. And at the same time, they're shifting the entire, you know, player development philosophy throughout the throughout all the affiliates. I think this is going to create the ability for the White Sox to never really fall into that old problem of having, you know, a bottomed out shitty farm system. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, I think last year was a huge deviation. Like, you know, there, I don't know how closely you followed it, but there, you know, there were rumors like probably two weeks before the draft that the White Sox were looking to go like with like prep pitching, like later if they could, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think, you know, there were the, the C.J. Abrams rumors, but then, you know, once Andrew Vaughn's there, you kind of have to take him. Yeah. But then they go they go back-to-back high school pitchers and then, you know, a high school outfielder and James Beard, and then they basically, like, punted the rest of the second day to, like, ensure that you could sign those guys. Like, I think it's a great philosophy. I just, like, wasn't 
totally expecting it because it's such a shift in mindset from what they had currently been doing. So if we see something similar, you know, this year, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be all for that. I mean, you start loading up, loading up your lower minors with guys with upside instead of, you know, 23 year old college players that are, you know, playing well in Kannapolis, but you know, are probably more organizational depth than anything. So, and then, you know, I mean, the, you know, the biggest issue with them taking high school players in the past was that, like, they couldn't develop them. So they're like, oh, high school players are risky. They always bust. Like, no, <laughs> the high school players you take are risky and they always bust because, like, you guys can't develop them. Like, if you can actually, actually develop them, it's a, it's a great path to take because you have so much margin for error. And, we've, you know, we've talked about this. You know, like, you, the one thing, like, you know, you take all these college bats, and, yeah, they're safer, sure. But if there's any setback at all, like you're absolutely screwed because you know you're you're taking forever to get to double a and then you're in the big leagues at 24 or 25 instead of you know like Bryce Bush last year like had a had a rough year at Kannapolis and you know he he battled a lot of injuries and he had some eye issues well baseball america you know i just got the prospect handbook today they have Bryce Bush like 13th in the white sox system and it's like all based on upside like he you know he totally tanked last year but you know, if, if he ends up being, you know, a stud or somebody that you can trade, I mean, you're talking about him having issues and still possibly being in the big leagues at 22 because he's still only like 19. Yeah. You just want, you know, you just want younger players. Mm-hmm. You mentioned James Beard. I've heard James Beard's name a ton since last year's draft. Give me your scouting report on James Beard. So Mike Shirley, and you're familiar with the 20 to 80 scouting scale. Yep. Mike Shirley told me that James Beard has 90 speed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was it was kind of funny. But um, it, so he's super raw. He played high school baseball in Mississippi, which isn't really a hotbed for talent, obviously. But, you know, it's a typical leadoff man profile. He does have some some pop in his bat. I think Keith Law had him like as like one of his top 100 draft prospects and really, you know, praise that pick. I think he might be like a two-year rookie ball guy. So even a, he might repeat the AZL before going to Great Falls and then he probably doesn't reach Kannapolis until next year. But I mean, that's the type of guy that you take with a fourth round pick because, you know, if, if you can develop him, I mean, you're talking about, you know, like a, what, like a D Gordon type profile, you know, mm-hmm. like po- power speed profile in the fourth round and you can afford for him to take five years to develop and hopefully get to the big leagues at age 23, you know, and if he, you know, is nothing, then, you know, it was, it was a fourth round pick. pick. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that, that's the kind of, I mean, they got him for $350,000, which, so when they took him, I was actually kind of surprised just because like after reading the scouting reports, I thought he would take a little bit more to sign. And the rumors were that like Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dawkins are both getting like over 2 million. So I was like, oh, they don't, they don't really have money for James Beard. But, you know, apparently, you know, they know. I mean, if guys get taken in the top 10 rounds, like, they're going to sign because no team is going to give up that bonus pool. But I just I just thought it was a little bit strange. I thought he'd get a little bit more than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like the pick. I mean, I've heard, you know, this is the most I've heard in depth about him. I've read Keith Law's upside on him. I've seen a lot of clips on Twitter um, of him, you know, with snippets of his power and his speed. But like you said, he's years away, and that's good. I want these guys to be years away. There's nowhere for, you said earlier. There's nowhere for these guys to go right now. So draft guys that 
there's no urgency to get him into the big leagues. They can take their time making their way through the system. If they've got a repeat rookie ball, that's fine. Nobody's waiting for him tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, and and that's the thing. I mean, obviously, like, the, you know, they preach best player available all they want, and that's fine. But, like, you do go into a draft, like, targeting certain areas. Whereas, like, you know, my guess would be for this year, I would guess that they go pitching or they take a high school position player. Yeah, like I just I would be really surprised if they took multiple multiple college position players early because those are guys that are going to move to the big leagues quickly and if everything goes according to plan here, I mean you're just not going to have room for a lot of them. So I think you know while they've you know they've never shied away from pitching, they have been pretty position player heavy of late. Now I think is when you you start going back and loading up on pitching because you can always trade pitching. Absolutely. Pitching will always be the number one currency on the trade market. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So before we shoot, before we shift into some more major league level stuff, as we kind of take a look at spring training, um, give me your number one prospect to watch for this year. He could be anywhere throughout <clears throat> any of the affiliates, just a guy that you've got your, your eyes on this year. Who's going to take big strides. So for me, I guess that guy would be Jonathan Stever, just after what he did last year. I liked Jonathan Stever a lot. Um, coming out of Indiana, um, I just liked the profile. I mean, he had like a 60-grade fastball, and I like I like taking guys with 60-graded tools, like in round five. He's another Midwest guy. Like Wisconsin has produced like a ton of baseball talent of late, and he yeah. played – so he played in Wisconsin. He played – he was like all state in football, and he kind of was a little bit under the radar. Then he pitched it at uh, – at Indiana. So, I mean, he was pretty good. He was Indiana's Friday night starter, but you know, he didn't really know how to pitch. So last year under, um, Matt Zaleski, that's when he goes basically, you know, to the Lucas Giolito school of, of doing things. And he's just throwing high four seamers like with his, with his nasty breaker. And he runs off like all these starts in a row and his stuff improved, you know, from basically scrapping his, his two seam sinker to, uh, to throw the four seamer more. So he was, he was really good last year and he's probably going to be at Birmingham this year. I've seen him mentioned basically as like the next prospect, like for the white Sox, like after the top four that everybody knows. I mean, Jim Callis, I think I saw interviewed him today for something. So, I mean, look like he's got some reliever risk. Um, if he doesn't develop like his secondaries enough, but Mm -hmm. you're looking at a guy that could be a mid rotation starter, possibly like if it all goes right. And, you know, in round five, that that's pretty good, and he could be he could be in the big leagues fairly quickly. I mean, if you've seen it, like if if he goes to Birmingham this year and he's pretty good, and the Sox are in contention, like you know, I know they've been playing service time games, but I kind of feel like that's a guy who you know could come up and pitch out of a big league bullpen this year or factor into things next year with all these other guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you you know, like you said, if the, it's all it's all relevant. Uh, whether or not they're in contention but I think if the Sox are in contention you know at the end of 2020 then you can definitely see a guy who you know like like Stever come up and, and get innings out of a bullpen or even start next year Phil you know a Gio Gonzalez will be gone he'll take that spot like I think the service time game is comes to a comes to an end for the most part when the Sox prove that what they have right now at the major league level is actually a product that can win yeah, I, I agree. And Dane, I mean, Dane Dunning's in the same boat. He's he's obviously rehabbing. He's obviously never thrown like higher than Double A. So 
talking about Dane Dunning as a guy that could help you this year, like might be a little bit of a stretch, but he's also on the 40 man and he's going to be on an innings limit. And if you think this stuff's good enough, like throwing Dane Dunning in a big league bullpen, like isn't, isn't the worst idea in the world. You know, even if you, even if you think he's a starter next year or long-term, I mean, if you're in a pennant race and you, you want live fresh arms, I mean, you know, you might, you might have a few of them that, you know, come from maybe what seems like an unlikely source right now. I totally agree. It's completely, completely plausible. Speaking of, you know, live fresh air, what's what's going on with Zach Birdie? So I, I mean, we we're told that Zach Birdie is like one hundred percent like ready to go. So I, I actually think Zach Birdie is one of these guys that's like kind of forgotten about. He said that his stuff was was coming back last year, and he was just getting pounded at at Birmingham. Um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't have much to do with stuff. And then he. He tore his patellar in his in his knee and missed the season, basically. So, I mean, he's ready to go. Like, I don't know about you, but, like, I wouldn't be totally surprised if, like, Zach Birdie's, like, one of their better relief pitchers in spring training, and you're talking about, like, hey, why aren't they, like, why isn't Zach Birdie in the big leagues right now? I mean, because I... that, that, that guy was one of the, you know, he was maybe the best relief pitching prospect in the minor leagues, like, before he got hurt, like, on the fast track to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously he's battled health and his stuff – you know, I think he was throwing like 94, 95 when he came back from Tommy John surgery, and some people were a little alarmed, but the White Sox weren't. I mean, if he's throwing 98, 99 like he was with his hard slider in the spring, like you can't tell me he's not better than, you know, some of the guys that they already have down in that bullpen. So, I mean, I think, look, I think I'd probably bet on him still starting like in Charlotte, mm-hmm. but if he's if he's a huge part of this, this team this year, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Yeah, me neither. I, you know, I've always... I've always been high on Zach Birdie, you know, when he got hurt. I I thought that when when he got hurt, um, that he, that year he was I I would not have been surprised if he was in the major leagues that year. It seemed like he was on his way, and you know, and then he had the Tommy John, and this, you know, he was out, he recovered, the velocity was low, and then you know he hurt his knee. If he's a hundred percent, I can't see any reason why, by, you know. June at the absolute latest, Birdie's not in the major league bullpen. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, he's got a him and like there's like a group of guys. I mean, Ian Hamilton basically, you know, came up, got his major league look, and then got hit in the face last year in the dugout, like fractured his jaw. Mm-hmm. That was after that was after he got in a in a uh, car accident in spring training and like hurt his shoulder. So that's another guy who like you know could be up there, and then. And then you also have Tyler Johnson, who might be a little bit behind them. But I mean, like once you're at this stage of the rebuild, I guess, and you're like trying to win, like any of those guys could be up at any time, like whenever the team thinks they're ready, I would think. Yeah. So this is actually perfect. This has been a a perfect segue into the spring training thing is I think one of the biggest question marks for the White Sox uh, at spring training this year is going to be the bullpen and how that shakes out on opening day. Um, So who do you think back to front? ends up opening the season in the White Sox bullpen. So it seems like there there's really only one spot up for grabs. Maybe, right. you know, maybe maybe two if if you don't think Jimmy Cordero is like a lock for the team. But I mm-hmm. mean, so like Colome is on the team and Herrera obviously like those two guys. Your two lefties, Bummer and Fry are most likely on the team. Steve Ciszek, you know, will be right. in the in the major league bullpen for sure. I would I would think Evan Marshall's probably in the bullpen regardless of what happens in the spring. I mean, I feel like they paid him a million dollars, like he could have a really bad spring and they'd still at least 
bring him with the big league team. Yeah. You know, and then, so you know, you're Jimmy Cordero. So you're at six, right. So Jimmy Cordero came up and did what he did last year. I'm sure he's like the leader in the clubhouse for a spot. But, you know, if he if he tanks a spot in spring training, like he could always get let go. But I'm pretty sure he's out of options. I think there's a few guys that are in that same boat, like Carson Fulmer. Like I could see Carson Fulmer getting the last spot in the bullpen just because like he's he's out of options. So mm-hmm. like if they decide that Carson Fulmer is not going to make the team, like he's going to go to waivers and he's probably going to be in another organization. Yeah. Now, if if one of those guys we talked about before like earns his spot, like I don't think anybody will care. But, you know, those are like some of the roster games that you might have to play. I mean, you don't have Dylan Covey around anymore. Um Jose Ruiz is still down there, but I think he has options and there weren't a ton of guys on the non-roster invite list who, where I was like, oh, yeah, that guy is like definitely going to be in the bullpen. So, I mean, I think it's pretty much guys that we've seen, you know, with, with C-Sheck being the only addition, like barring them doing something else here. So I guess we just have to, you know, hope that they're a little bit better. The bullpen is one of the trouble spots, I think, just because they have guys at the back end of their bullpen that, like, don't miss a ton of bats and they don't throw yeah. very hard. So, you know, like we talked about earlier, one of those young guys stepping up would actually be really beneficial because, you you know, you don't have to, like, go pay for a veteran closer. Yeah, absolutely. I You know, so that's what I was going to ask next. What is your, you know, feeling? How confident are you, I should say, heading into 2020 as as is in the bullpen as we just, you know, rattled off? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't feel great about it just because I like, you know, I would prefer them to have more hard throwers, and you know, like how fickle bullpens are. Like, if you told me Jace Fry was better than Aaron Bummer this year, like I wouldn't really be that surprised by that, just because like Aaron Bummer was really good last year. But that's why smart teams trade these guys because you, you just literally have no idea like what they're going to be from year to year. And Alex Colomay's peripherals aren't very good, which which is worrisome. I mean, you know, he got saves last year, but. I you know on a bad team I just I don't know like he he worries me I think if the Sox are in the race you know and one of these guys doesn't take a big step forward that's that's where you're looking you can always get bullpen guys at the deadline you know and right. you know just like a closer like a Ken Giles or a Michael Givens somebody like that that's just you know a little bit more proven and throws a little bit harder but that is one area of concern I think the lineups I think they're really gonna hit um, and I think the starting pitching is is okay with the potential to be really good. But, you know, I just don't know, you know, if starters are going five innings, if they have enough in that bullpen to win without, you know, outslugging teams. Right. You know, it's nice to finally head into spring training and, and you know, not really have a whole lot of question marks, you know, around, you know, the, the lineup and the rotation. It's all, and, the, and even the bullpen, as we just, you know, discussed, it's all pretty much set. Like, we really, we, we already kind of <clears> know <throat> what the roster is going to look like on March 26th when they host the Royals. Um, the question marks, I would say, going into spring training right now are second base because, you know, who's going to start there and how long is he going to be there? And then... I would say, how does Luis Robert adjust to starting the year uh, on the OBA right. roster? And, I mean, really offensively, those are my two big questions. Um, you know, what do you think? And then uh, and then on the pitching side, too, I think Kolpak's the biggest story just because, yeah. like, I, I expect him to start in Charlotte, but I think it's definitely, like, a story, right? Because, like, 
Kopech could be their best pitcher in spring training, and then they send him to Charlotte for you know a variety of and reasons. Then everybody will be that, pissed off. Yeah, and, and and look, it's not totally service time related. I mean, look, I'm sure that they'll take back that extra year if they can, but I think <laughs> they, I think I think that they want to manage his innings, and I feel like they can do that in four inning increments in warm weather to start the year instead mm-hmm. of coming north to Chicago. And there are five starters, you know, so. Right. Um, as far as what you said, Luis Robert, I'm very curious to see how they approach him. You know, I'm pretty sure Luis Robert could not hit this year and be a two war player just because of his defensive base running. Yeah. But, you know, do you want to say, you know, Luis Roberts, our leadoff hitter, he's going to see fastballs all year and hit in front of Yohan Moncada and like, we're just going to throw him right into the fire. Or are you going to hit him at like seven or eight and just, you know, kind of ease his way into it. So I guess like, that's one of the things that I'd be curious just to see like what they're actually going to do there. And then second base, like, I mean, I guess it's the Danny Mendick show right now, unless they sign Brian Dozier or somebody, which I think would make some sense. But similarly to what Hans said um, at Sox Fest, I mean, there's a lot of second basemen right now that aren't signed, but I mean, the, the writing's kind of on the wall here, right? Like Nick Madrigal's going to spend – I don't know, like 130 games with the White Sox. So mm-hmm. I mean, you, you basically be coming here for a month and then you're, you're turning into a backup. So I don't, you know, I had heard that they had offered Brian Dozier. I don't really know why he's not signed. Maybe because he's holding out hope for more playing time somewhere. And then he'll just, you know, if this is the best he can do, like maybe I'd, I'd feel a lot better with yeah. like a Brian Dozier starting the year at second. Like I look, I think Danny Mendick's a good story. I think he's a 22nd round pick. That's like, you know, capable of being a major league utility guy, but in a year where you're trying to win, I don't know how comfortable I feel with Danny Mendick as your starting second baseman, regardless of how soon Nick Madrigal is going to come. You know, if they they decide that Nick Madrigal, like they want to bring him up right away, great. That that would be that would be fantastic. Absolutely. I don't think I don't think he's a guy like Luis Robert where you're worried about seven years from now and him making three hundred million dollars. I think you just deal with it later. Um, I don't I don't think they're going to do it. And I think part of the reason they're not going to do it is because I truly think that they, you know, want to see more development out of him at Charlotte, regardless of, you know, what anybody else actually believes that or not. Um, We'll see. I mean, he's going to get time with the big league club and then they're going to have a decision to make. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Me personally, I put Luis Robert at the top of the order, especially if you got Mendick playing second base. Even if you have Leory Garcia playing in second base, because, you know, people have said it both ways. Mendick, I agree with you. I think Mendick starts at second base if they don't bring anybody else in and Mandrigal starts at triple A. Um, but regardless of which one of those guys plays second base, I don't want to see them at the top of the order. I don't want to see Tim Anderson thrown at the top of the order or Yohan Mankata. Both of them guys have spent time as a leadoff hitter with the White Sox and not had their best results. Yeah, it hasn't gone well. And I think Yohan Moncada should be your number two hitter for the next 10 seasons. All day. So, Every day. so, I mean, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I would just lead off Luis Robert right away. And I, and I know, like, there's a lot of people that would be worried about that. You know, look, he's got an eight-year deal, man. Like, he's here. Right. So if he's going to be the leadoff guy and that's, you know, you think he's this, like, new age leadoff guy where maybe he's not, like, a 370, 380 on base guy, but he's more of a, you know, like a George Springer type leadoff mm-hmm. guy. Fine. Like, because my thing is, like, if Madrigal's not going to start up with the team, who the hell is the leadoff guy going to be? And I just, like, have fears, like, already that, you know, the opening day lineup, like, Rick Renteria is going to have, 
Larry Garcia leading off with with Jose Abreu hitting third with all these other guys behind him, and it's like, oh my god, I'm gonna oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my mind. So I can't handle that. But you but I would not be surprised at all. Like you said, it would be very you know Ricky Renteria ish. Um, you know I I know you you were squeezing this in. We're approaching the forty five minute mark, and I know you want to eat dinner and stuff uh, and get on with your evening. But before I let you go, give me give me your bold prediction for this season. I don't want it to be a record, right? I don't want to talk division. I don't want to talk wins and losses yet. We're still too are too far out for that in my opinion, but like 26 man roster wise, at least all the players that we can reject, give me something that you think is going to happen this season. Somebody's going to break out or, you know, maybe even somebody regresses. I don't either way. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I think Michael Kopech is going to be awesome. <laughs> like regardless of like what role that they put him in. I mean, like, I think there's going to be, Bad starts, obviously, but I think like the explosive fastball and some of the other, you know, stuff that he has. He talked it at Soxfest about how like Tommy John was a blessing in disguise and you know, it's like blah 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 sometimes. But with this kid, like I actually kinda believe it because he needs to be more of a pitcher than a thrower. I mean, I was I was at that game last year when he you know, in his debut and he's like trying to, you know, throw hundred and five to yeah. start the game and you kinda knew it like wasn't gonna work out. No. Uh-huh. He, he's got lucky it rained that night. I was there too and he was he was he was struggling. He was overdoing it. So like on the pitching side I guess I would go there. And I you know, I guess I'll go out on the limb and say that I don't think people are gonna hate the Nomar Mazara trade as much as they did like when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um even if like you get a platoon partner and he only faces righties, like he had an 850 OPS against right-handers last year. I mean, people, I feel like even if he's that, like that's a huge upgrade from what they had before. And I mean, I think people, you know, had their hearts set on like Nick Castellanos or something who like really isn't even that good anyway. But you know, like if they get anything out of Nomar Mazzara, this is a guy that you know was a top 50 prospect in baseball. He was untouchable for they wouldn't trade him for Chris Sale. Yeah, I remember. You know, and it's, and it's kind of like you said, like he's 20, you know, he's got miles on him, but he's still only 24. I mean, how many times have you seen? Like it just, sometimes it just takes guys a while and they need to buy in. And the book on him in Texas was that he would buy in for a short period of time and it would go in one ear and out the other. And he's like back hitting ground balls again. And, you know, if he does that here, he's probably going to get designated for assignment at the end of the year, or non-tendered at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's worth a look in right field because I do think you have some more prospects on the fringe and you know, you could just go back out into free agency next year. So I guess I would say Kopech and Mazzara would be the surprises um, for this year. And then just on the other end of that spectrum, I guess I would say James McCann just cause I don't really think James McCann's going to play very much. And I don't know what's going to happen with that situation. Like I wrote, something about it and people were all over me obviously because i'm like the leader in the zach collins <laughs> fan club um but i just think i zach completely collins, agreed with you to be honest so 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 i'm not saying that he's like necessarily better i just think zach collins is a better roster fit because right. I, I don't know how you justify james mccann playing ever like who who are you gonna sit so he can play like exactly. it doesn't it doesn't and obviously if he's catching that's fine like in his true backup capacity but like, okay, then one of one of Abreu and Carnacion or Grandal has to sit then, and it just like doesn't really make any sense to me. Yeah. So if those so three are that, healthy, and you're seeing James McCann get designated hitter or first base at bats, there's a problem. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if like they're waiting on 
like somebody's starting catcher to get hurt in spring training. Like, look, James McCann's a trooper. He was awesome last year. Um, I'm sure they'll try to like do right by him, but you know, a year before free agency, he can't be totally thrilled with this situation. So I think that's something to monitor as well. Yeah, totally agree. James, Thank you for coming on. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it as always, and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. All right, man. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you. All right, everybody. That was James Fox, the senior editor of Future Sox and the managing editor at Southside Hit Pen. Once again, before we get out of here, uh, go follow James on Twitter if you're not already, at JamesFox917. Make sure you're following Future Sox, uh, Southside Hit Pen, his two um, organizations and go give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at Sox Unfiltered and of course go follow the ONTAP Sports Network at ONTAP Sportsnet. Um, that's going to do it for me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, we will be picking up the amount of episodes that we pump out uh, per week moving forward as we roll into spring training. So look out for that. In the meantime, please head over to Apple, um, hit the subscribe button, the rate button, leave a review, share it with your friends, family, social media, whatever. You know the drill. Thanks for listening as always. And until next time, Jason, Bill, take it away. Three and two. This could be the final pitch of the ball game, Bill. Really? What are we going to do then? We will say goodbye after we talk to James McCann. Can't say goodbye. It's early. I agree. And America agrees. Oh, that's a strike. He's out of there. The game is over. The White Sox win. Print the banner. Line up the parade. Michigan Avenue on the Studge Turkle Bridge, Division Street. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you.